Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss reproductive rights, more specifically the ACA requirement that certain health plans provide contraceptive coverage. With me to discuss the topic is Guttmacher Institute's Adam Sonfield. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. As always, let me begin with some context. Insurance coverage for contraception has been long-standing policy. The vast majority of states cover all forms of contraception coverage under Medicaid, and most states require private insurance to cover prescription contraceptives. Not surprisingly, then, the ACA mandated contraceptive coverage based on an IOM recommendation, and therefore the ACA determined and rulemaking subsequently determined it's an essential, quote-unquote, essential health benefit for all new plans. As noted in the website introduction to this podcast, with this requirement now in effect, religiously affiliated nonprofits and for-profit companies have challenged contraception coverage despite the fact churches are exempt and religiously affiliated nonprofits can opt out. Again, with me to discuss the topic is Guttmacher Institute's Adam Sonfield. Mr. Sonfield's bio is posted on the podcast website. One final comment before we begin. This topic can be very politically and emotionally charged. Therefore, we'll do our best to adhere closely to the research and what it suggests for policy. So having said all that, Adam, let me start with the specifics. What does the ACA or related rulemaking require new plans to provide? Um, Sure. Thank you, David. Um, The Affordable Care Act includes a lot of provisions um, designed not just to establish these new marketplaces and to expand healthcare coverage for people who didn't have it, but also to set out new protections for consumers um, for all private health plans. Um, One of those protections was um, a requirement that plans cover um, dozens of proven preventive healthcare services and to do so without any out-of-pocket costs for the patient. So no co-payments or deductibles or anything like that. And the idea behind that provision was that you know deductibles and co-pays are great to keep down costs, but the problem is that people don't always reduce the costs, reduce the use of services that they should be reducing, and they end up reducing needed services as well. Um, so the idea is to get rid of that cost barrier for preventive care and increase preventive use of preventive care services. Um, so among those dozens of preventive care services, there's several different categories. One of those categories was women's preventive health care. To help set those standards, um, the government turned to a body called the Institute of Medicine, um, which is a nonpartisan group of experts. They set up a panel to look at this study. They came back with a set of women's preventive services, including things like support for breastfeeding and testing for um, sexually transmitted infections and pap smears. And one of those services uh, was the full range of women's contraceptive methods and services. Um, So that includes counseling for contraception, um, along with the full range of different methods like the pill, the IUD, the shot, um, and and many others, um, and uh, all the services that are needed to go along with that. Okay, great. So let me just ask you on point, how is or is contraceptive coverage provided under the ACA a departure from current contraception coverage provided under Medicaid and private insurance policies? Sure. So um, private insurance has been 
covering contraception generally for the last couple of decades. We found out um, through a, a study from the Guttmacher Institute back in 1993 that at the time we were surprised to find out that there were major gaps in coverage of contraception. Um, and there has been a big movement in the last 20 years to change that. Um, and by um, early last decade, uh, so the beginning of like, you know, around 2000, um, already insurance companies were starting to cover a much broader range of methods. Meanwhile, Medicaid has been required to cover family planning services and supplies since 1972. Um, and uh, states have some leeway in terms of what specific methods to cover, um, but generally almost all of them cover the full range of methods. Um, and um, you mentioned before that many states require coverage of contraception. There are 28 states that require insurance plans, private insurance plans, that cover other prescription drugs to cover contraceptive drugs and devices. Um, and in fact, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, um, which um, deals with uh, discrimination in the workforce, uh, ruled way back in 2000 um, that employer-sponsored health plans that are generally comprehensive but don't cover contraception are practicing sex discrimination. Um, so none of this is, is all that new. The newest piece really for the private sector is this idea of eliminating out-of-pocket costs for the patient. But even then, um, under Medicaid, um, you haven't, since again, back since 1972, um, patients have not been charged co-payments um, for family planning services. Um, so there's a long history of, of this type of coverage and even of the coverage of cost sharing. So suffice to say, the ACA requirement is not a substantial uh, deviation from uh, standing policy. It, it's certainly not groundbreaking in that sense, um, but it is a small but important tweak in the way that private insurance handles coverage of contraception and other preventive care services as well. Meaning no copay. No, no copay, yes. So let me ask you about the recent court ruling, um, and this was by Sotomayor for the Supreme Court. So what is the process specifically by which religiously affiliated nonprofits can opt out of this mandate? Sure. So there, there are two different pieces that the administration, the Obama administration, put out there to address this issue of religious objections to contraception. One of them was an exemption, um, and they, just outright a flat-out exemption, um, and that applies to houses of worship, churches, um, churches, um, yeah, and other very closely related you know, bodies, um, and they are exempt from this entirely. And that means that their employees and their employees' dependents whether that's a janitor or a groundskeeper or whatever, doesn't have access to contraceptive coverage under their, under their policies if, the, if their employer objects. Um, you know, that, that was a flat-out exemption. For a broader range of nonprofits that assert that they are religiously affiliated... Like a hospital. Um, could be hospitals, schools, universities, a wide range of, um, of social services agencies... Um, which together, you know, employ hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Americans. Um, you know, hospitals are, uh, you know, religiously affiliated hospitals are, are a major part of the market, for instance, um, and they all receive an immense amount of government funding, by the way. But um, for those um, organ nonprofits that put themselves out there as, as religiously affiliated and who object to covering some or all methods of contraception, um, they have what the administration talks about as an accommodation. 
Um, and the arrangement is trying to set up so that the employer doesn't have to pay for or arrange for or even talk about coverage or contraception, but their employees will still end up getting that coverage um, from the insurance company instead. Um, and so for that to happen, the employer needs to essentially fill out a little form saying, I object to, to coverage of contraception or some method of contraception on religious grounds and I'm going to pass that off, you know, I'm going to opt out of this and someone else can, can think about it. Um, and essentially, so some of the, the, a bunch of the current lawsuits, there are roughly 80 of them that are active right now. Um, my, uh, most of them involve for-profit companies, but the ones that involve non-profit companies um, are mostly about this paperwork piece, um, about saying that even filling out that form makes them complicit in the fact that their employees will eventually, through another means, have access to contraception. And they're saying that it infringes on their religious rights. So, correct, that there is, there, they have to sign a form explaining their objections, and their objection is, as you noted, um, they believe they're complicit then in a moral wrong. Right, and of course they're, they're saying the exact same thing they're saying through their lawsuits, which is that they object to, to covering this contraception. Okay. Um, you yeah. know, meanwhile, you have you have several other cases going on um, about for-profit corporations. Well, let's let, well, let's get to that in a second. But just sure. let me ask you this follow-up question. So, for these religiously affiliated nonprofits that are objecting, assume that they do sign the form explaining their objections and they submit the form. Is it possible for the form or for this uh, request for an exemption? Is it possible for it to be denied? Um. No, I don't. I don't believe it is. Essentially, it's um, it's automatic. It's automatic. They attest to the fact that they are religiously affiliated and that they're a nonprofit, um, and that's all there is to it. Okay, okay. As I noted in the intro, the ACA did not automatically exempt religious affiliated nonprofits. So now again, we have this uh, late January Supreme Court ruling temporarily exempting religious affiliated nonprofits. In addition, as you noted, uh, Adam, we now have other suits, and in fact, ne later next month in March, uh, the court will review or hear two related cases brought by for-profit companies also seeking a coverage exemption. Both of these, again, uh, these two cases, the plaintiffs, again, are arguing religious freedom. Now, I'm aware Guttmacher filed an amicus or friend of the court brief defending the ACA provisions. However, of course, as we discussed before we started this, Adam, we're not here to uh, debate relevant constitutional law, the Establishment Clause, or the, interpret the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is Certainly part of all not. of this. So since both the temporary exemption and the for-profit challenge are similar, they're both objecting on religious freedom provisions or grounds, what does the healthcare research conclude regarding contraception coverage, and what does it suggest regarding public policy, or in Guttmacher's view, what in this instance is sound healthcare policy? Yeah, I mean, I think part of, you have to go back to the rationale behind um, this policy in the first place. And remember that the whole point of this provision is to increase use of proven preventive care services. Um, contraception was put on that list by an, you know, an independent expert panel. Um, and they did so for lots of good reasons um, that are based in research. Um, you know, family planning was listed as one of the ten great public health achievements of the 20th century. Um, by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
Um, and they did that because of the enormous health benefits that come with being able to plan and time and space your pregnancies. Some of those health benefits are related to maternal and child health. Um, and, um, you know, part of that is um, for if you can prevent an unplanned pregnancy and time your pregnancy is according, you know, appropriately, you can reduce the incidence of preterm births and low birth weight babies. Um, and you reduce can, abortions. And, and you can certainly, you can reduce abortions, which is not really a health benefit per se, but it's, um, it's certainly something that I think most of society can agree on. That's something we want to be able to do is reduce, reduce the incidence of abortion, reduce the need for abortion. Um, you know, on the health side, as I said, you have the, you have the infant health benefits. You have, it helps women get into prenatal care earlier. Um, it helps them, um, you know, plan on breastfeeding and breastfeed longer. It helps them quit smoking if they need to. You know, generally the whole idea is to help you get healthy before you get pregnant. Um, and that's a particularly important piece for, for instance, women who have chronic health conditions, many of which can be made worse through pregnancy. And you want to make sure you have them under control before you actually get pregnant. Um, and beyond that, um, you have a, a range of social and economic benefits as well. Um, you know, when, when you ask women and couples why they, why they use contraception, um, they don't talk about health benefits first. They talk about what it means for their lives. They talk about it helps them stay in school and complete, you know, get the, the higher education they want and uh, stay in the workforce and get a promotion that they want. Um, it, they talk about the added income it means for their family. They talk about what it means for the relationship with their spouse it, and what it means for being able to prepare for um, having kids when they want to have kids and making sure that they're financially ready for that and emotionally ready for that and that they can have the time and, and investments to, to put into raising their children the way they want to raise them. Um, and children um, have better outcomes you know, because of that. Um, that's not surprising. Um, you know, all those are things that, that women and couples know and they talk about, and it's also things that there's been a, a wealth of research backing up those facts. Um, you know, I think but beyond this, one of the things that haven't, hasn't been especially clear in this debate um, is that it's not just about having access to some types of contraception. It's about having access to the full range of choices. Because so some, and are, some are much more effective than some others. Absolutely, that's part of it, um, is that on average, some methods are far more effective than others. So for instance, a couple relying on condoms, the average couple relying on condoms, is about 90 times as likely to have an unplanned pregnancy during a year as a couple that's relying on the hormonal IUD. Um, you know, that's, that's the average effectiveness. Um, and that average, you know, um, it does change depending on individual women and individual couples because... Um, Women need different methods at different points in their lives, and in fact, on average, um, you know, most women will end up using four or more methods by the time they're in their early 40s. Um, and part some of that may be different side effects at different points in their lives, and potential drug interactions, and their perceived risk of sexually transmitted infections, um, how often they're having sex at that point in their lives whether they um, have completed their childbearing or whether they might want to get pregnant at some point in the future. All those are factors about why you might need a different method or want a different method at different points. 
Um, and that matters because satisfaction with your method is a really important piece of whether or not you're going to use it consistently and correctly and therefore effectively. Um, and so, you know, women who are able to use their methods consistently and correctly are far less likely to have an unplanned pregnancy. Um, and in fact, um, of all the unplanned pregnancies that happen every year, 95% um, are, are, are the result of women who, women and couples who either were not using a method at all or were using it incorrectly. Um, and so that's really why that choice of methods is important for women. Um, and that's one of the, the advantages of this particular provision, which requires coverage of the full range of methods and requires them to be put on the same playing field, a level playing field, financially. I mean, all with no copay. All of no copay. Let me just ask you lastly, so these two for-profit companies that are challenging and wishing an exemption, and these are Hobby Lobby stores and Conestoga Wood Specialties, um, what's the consequence? Say they are successful in their complaint. The court says that for-profits as well can fill out this exemption, sign it, and succeed. What What's the consequence? Um, well, it partly depends on um, on what, you know, there is the exemption and there's the accommodation. It's, um, if they got the exemption, it means that their employees and their employees' family members would not have access to coverage of contraception or at least to certain methods. Um, you know, it's interesting to note that, that these... Um, you know, that these two cases, they're objecting to certain specific methods, um, which they claim are actually methods of abortion. That is not true. Um, but they're also objecting to coverage of counseling about these methods. They're basically saying that if you are going to your doctor and getting your doctor's visit paid for through your insurance, um, that your doctor can't talk to you about certain things. Um, that's a, a pretty immense invasion of the, of the doctor-patient relationship. Um, and it's something that we would never think to allow for any other type of objection along these lines. Because when you think about it, there are all sorts of other religious and moral objections to various healthcare services, to blood transfusions, to mental health care, to vaccination for cervical cancer, to um, um, infertility treatment. Um, some of that for everyone, or some of that might be for certain people. You might object to unmarried women having access to STI treatment. Um, you know, all these things are things that people actually do object to in real life on religious grounds, um, but they're not things that we're seriously debating um, about allowing people to be able to opt out, allowing employers to be able to opt out of those coverage, coverage services for their employees. Um, so I think that's part of the issue, is that so much of this discussion has been around um, the rights of the employer. Um, and very little has really been around what this means for the employees and for their family members. Um, and, you know, part of that is about their religious and moral values, you know, their beliefs about what is right for them at this point in their lives, their beliefs about whether or not they want to be having kids at this point, and, you know, that their beliefs that using contraception might be a, not only a moral thing to do, but a morally correct thing to do at that point in their lives. So it's about um, their individual autonomy. It's about their autonomy in addition to their, to their health needs and their health concerns and the concerns of their children and their social and economic you know, welfare. All these pieces are you know, the, the real potential benefits of this policy um, and the real potential harm 
of some sort of sweeping exemption from that policy. Okay, Adam, sorry to say we're exactly at our time boundary, so I appreciate your time today. Thank you, and obviously we'll watch closely March 25th when the court hears these two cases. Yeah, and of course we won't hear about it probably until June, unfortunately. Right, when they make their decision, yes. Yes. Thank you again, Adam. You're welcome.